Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 104. In this episode, we're talking about gun rights and conspiracies with Dr. Mike Austin. Dr. Mike Austin is professor of philosophy and religious studies at Eastern Kentucky University, and he's the author of God and Guns in America, published by Airdmans. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this conversation, we really wanted to kind of extend the conversation that we had in our previous episode with Professor Carly Crouch and Professor Chris Hayes, where we talked about guns from a biblical perspective. And here we want to talk about guns from a philosophical perspective and think more about the nature of the rights that we have as Americans. What were some of the the thoughts that you all had about our conversation with Dr. Austin? I really enjoyed the way that Mike engaged with not just a binary argument of you must have guns to be able to protect rights or uh, it's my right to, to have guns versus guns are uh, intrinsically evil and therefore they, they should not be owned by and should not be engaged with it whatsoever. Uh, but he, he has a, a more nuanced, uh, if we can call it a via media approach to the topic. And especially as that flows on in terms of the conspiracy theories and the other uh, attendant discourse around the questions of gun ownership and gun violence in the US. I really appreciated just uh, the humility and the posture uh, of Dr. Austin. He's, he was he didn't pull any punches. Uh, he's very clear and direct about calling uh, what's a conspiracy and what is not a conspiracy. And But he did so in, at least in my perspective, just a really peaceable way. And he really modeled uh, what a positive and peaceful response to gun culture could actually look like just in our conversations. Uh, but but really, the thing I was most intrigued about was the fact that Chris bought a gun in America. Yeah, I did it to prove a point about gun control in the US. Chris, you couldn't have gone to Chick-fil-A or something. Um, but anyway, to get us back on our conversation with Dr. Austin, Uh, What I really appreciated about his approach to this issue is how he is nuanced and he is humble and he is very willing to dialogue and he has really great practical advice for how to do that about these hot button issues. So as Chris said, he really demonstrates this third way approach between maybe two extremes or two sides that people either tend to gravitate, gravitate towards side A or side B, side A being pacifism and side B being just war theory and that sort of thing. And what Dr. Austin's interested in doing is what he calls peace building. And I thought that was a very constructive and creative approach and way forward. All right. And here's our conversation with Dr. Mike Austin. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Austin. Yeah, thank you. So we're really excited to have another conversation on on guns, especially in America, thinking about the role that it has in our society. And we kind of want to extend the conversation that we had last week with 
Professor Carly Crouch and Professor Christopher Hayes and thinking about guns from a biblical perspective, uh, thinking holistically and analogically primarily to, to kind of get there. And in this conversation, we want to extend that towards philosophy and a little bit more uh, of that kind of tenor. Just kind of curious, how do you frame this discussion, both as a Christian and as a philosopher? What's your main approach to this topic? Yeah, there's sort of two prongs, I guess, of the approach. One is just as a particularly a Christian ethical approach. So thinking about it, I mean, as a philosophical ethicist, but with Christian commitment, so using scripture, Christian thought, theology, kind of work that's grounded with, within that. Um, and then more purely philosophical rights framework, because a lot of the conversation about guns in the United States has to do with rights, obviously, with the Second Amendment, right to life, these other things. And so I I tried to enter into that discussion to bring some clarity to, to how to think about rights, and especially in this context, because there's a lot of confusion about that. So I'm, I'm curious to know, um, as you're framing this discussion in a two-pronged way, so you're resourcing the Christian tradition and theology, and then you're looking more philosophically at rights, how do you enter into that philosophical conversation in particular? What are some of the things that you highlight yeah, I, I sort of begin, or I do begin, just with the right to life and then the Second Amendment right to bear arms. So a mix of the legal and the moral. But I try to make that distinction because I think we confuse them a lot in our public discussion of rights that, you know, that there is a difference between legal rights and moral rights. So I've, I'm 52-year-old male. I've got the legal right to vote. And I would say I have that because there's I mean, there's a moral right that I have. That's why Civil Rights Act uh, of 64, right, that they had the moral right uh, and secured the legal right. So there are things that we can have moral rights to that the law doesn't protect. Um, and so I wanted to talk about both of those because they're both important. And a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, when they talk about guns in America, they just appeal to the Second Amendment. You know, there's a right to bear arms. They add on that it's the God-given right. And sometimes they say it's a God-given right to Americans. So not Australians, I guess. Um, and that's a confusion, right? Because all of a sudden you're mixing the moral and the legal. And so the legal question in a certain sense has already been settled in terms of, at least for now, uh, with the 2008 and 2010 Supreme Court decisions that, that said that the Second Amendment does secure an individual right to bear arms. Uh, in the past, there was more of a communitarian emphasis on that. Uh, and that it's a little foggy how you really strictly delineate those. But the idea that that the Second Amendment really does talk about an individual right to bear arms was affirmed or secured by those two Supreme Court decisions. But then, of course, there's that deeper question for Christians about the moral right. Because right? my country might, I mean, I've got the legal right to do all kinds of things that are wrong, commit adultery, um, you know, lie to my best friend. I'm not, but doesn't mean I should do them, morally speaking, just as a human being or as a follower of Christ. And so I try to separate out those two. And I really want to put pressure on Christians to not just appeal to the Constitution or the Second Amendment, but to think more deeply about it, both philosophically, but then in ways that are informed by their faith. And I just think we don't, like so many issues, especially among certain segments of uh, the Christian church in the United States these days, it's a lot more informed by cultural just the cultural waters of the moment, um, politics, all that kind of thing by a, a slogan or a meme. And so I just I want to get deeper and get people to think more deeply about it. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can explain how you would go about 
talking about guns from the perspective of a moral right as opposed to a legal right, because you're right, most people do appeal to the legality of it and wanting to preserve that. And usually what I hear is, uh, you know, Second Amendment, we need to preserve that. Why? Because freedom. Right. It's, it's more of an appeal to freedom as opposed to looking at, well, because there's a moral right for us to be able to have guns. So what would it look like to to frame this in more uh, of an, an ethical sense? Yeah, I think the best argument for a moral right, it ends up depending on the right to life. So you can and I've forgotten the name of the, the philosophers that make this. But essentially, the idea is I've got the right to life. That's a moral right that I have. And sometimes um, to secure that right, I'm in situations where uh, a firearm is necessary to protect, you know, defend that right to keep from forfeiting it, say, you know, all the scenarios you can come up with. So in, in, the, in the philosophical terminology, then the right to bear arms would be like a means right. It's a right that is a means to secure my right to life, I'm grounded in self-defense, that kind of thing. So I think that's probably the best moral argument that I can, yeah, that, that's one I rehearse in the book that, that I think that's the best that you can do. And I think there's some force to that. Somebody who has, and as I wrote the book, and since I have been thinking since the book came out, I probably moved more, even more uh, against kind of the, you know, the use of guns and those kind of things as a Christian, and even philosophically, but also just, you know, trying to live an ethical Christian life. And I don't see, I have more problems with than I did even then. Um, so you've described what the moral argument might be in favor of owning guns. What types of moral arguments would there be against owning guns? Yes, good. So that's that's really important in all this rights talk, because a lot of the talk is as, as if the right to bear arms and even the right to self-defense are absolute rights, but they're not absolute. Right? There are their conditional rights or they can be forfeited. So if to save my life means I have to kill a thousand people you know, that's a lot harder conclusion to choke down, right? That my right to self-defense, you know, assuming maybe they're innocent people set up a thought experiment like philosophers like to do. Um, other people have rights as well. So usually we think of standardly that my rights end where significant harm, we're exercising my right to something would put significant harm to another person. So, you know, like they talk about in high school social studies, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And so in cases where the right, you know, the right to bear arms risks or even perpetrates great harm on other people. I mean, people have a right not to be shot in school, in a synagogue, in a church, at the mall, all those kind of things. So when rights conflict, you try to do your best to sufficiently weigh the interest of everybody involved. Um, and so that limits the right. And even and again, in the legal realm, the Supreme Court also said that their decisions about it being the Second Amendment, securing an individual right to bear arms, is perfectly consistent with limits of who can have a gun, where they can carry a gun, what kind of gun they can have, all those sorts of things. So I found in my discussions with people in real life and even more online since the pandemic, they don't understand that rights aren't absolute. They tell me I don't know what a right is if I say there are conditions. And I'm just like, well, I do know what a right is. I mean, this is this is just a standard part of the legal and moral tradition. Um, so I think that's that's how that's the difficulty, right? In, in some ways of trying to adjudicate between those two. That's really fascinating, Mike. I, I wonder, in, in your book, you write about uh, a little bit about the, the history of guns in America. Uh, but I wonder if you could give us and our, our listeners maybe just a brief rundown of how these rights, you know, the legal and the moral, uh, how they became separated 
uh, in the public discourse and especially within uh, Christian discourse? Yeah, well, I think they they actually get merged, right? So when in the, like people kind of talk about them um, and kind of go back and forth without really realizing it. But I think it goes part of it goes back to just our history, right? I mean, sort of the, the tradition of guns and the right to own, right to bear arms. You can find some of those things in older, um, you know, documents that predate the Constitution. Um, so those, those have been present in some of those things. But gun, you know, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, um, and then really in the 1800s, there's a book called "The Gunning of America" that talks about uh, the influence of of corporations in America and how, you know, like the Winchester company could barely stay afloat. Um, they stayed afloat in the 1800s by selling arms overseas. And then in the 20th century, a lot of cultural things came into play, right? And so guns became less about, at least during that time, they were less about self-defense and more about sport, um, about being, you know, there are these ads, you know, buy your son, it's Winchester 22, you'll be proud that he has a, he's a dead-eye marksman, those kind of things. So what I think has happened with Christians in particular, like a lot of things in the United States, there's this melding of identities and traditions and beliefs from sort of American history, American culture, past and present with Christian views. And because God is mentioned and discussed in some of those founding documents and by the founding fathers, it all just sort of gets (laughs) in this sort of uh, big mess intertwined. Um, and you add that, I, you know, certain kinds of identity, whether it's regional or right? people in the South, or I grew up in the Midwest. I mean, my dad had a gun cabinet with a little chintzy lock on it. And that was just normal, um, growing up in Kansas for me. Um, so I was around them, used to them, taught how to use them safely. Whereas for other, you know, so that's part of some people's sort of family tradition. They think a bit, some people think obviously being American means owning a gun and even, Part of being a Christian, and they'll use biblical, uh, well, purported justifications for that. So, yeah, all that stuff gets, it's just a mess, kind of like the abortion issue. There's so many different things that come into play that it's become so emotionally laden and so difficult to untangle everything. And so, one thing I'm trying to do in, in the book and just in other venues is just try to separate out what are the issues. Let's just kind of focus on one thing at a time. What are the central things? What can we do to reduce gun violence? Those kind of things. So, Thanks, Mike. One of the things I find really interesting here as an Australian, um, but also as one who has spent a reasonable amount of time in the US, uh, is that intertwining that you're talking about um, where the moral right to bear arms has become uh, associated with the divine right to bear arms. Uh, And it seems that, as you said earlier, you know, this is a right for Americans. Uh, it's a divine right of Americans. It's not necessarily a divine right for anyone else uh, because, you know, the rest of us in the rest of the world are heathens with free healthcare. I'm interested, can you explore that a little bit more in terms of not just the cultural impact of that, but that shift from a moral argument into a theological argument for that? And what then happens when that comes back onto itself uh, in trying to tease it back out as a legal moral issue? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it begins, it seems to me the discussion often begins quoting the Second Amendment, and then it's a God-given right, and then some might, I think when you get some of that American exceptionalism or the, what Sean Hannity, I don't know if he still says it, I used to drive to a town about 45 minutes away and teach in an extension campus, and so on the way there I'd listen to Hannity, and on the way home I'd listen to NPR, 
just to kind of, you know, um, you know, Hannity, America is the greatest country God gave the world, whatever, however he used to say it, maybe he still does, I don't know. But that people believe that, right? That this is the best country in the world. Uh, we don't need any free healthcare, right? We're the best. Um, and so I think there's this, there really is this faith, freedom, patriotism stuff that gets mixed in together. And so people, and then people go looking, and we all do this to a degree, um, but they go looking to the Bible, maybe to try to, okay, what's something in the Bible that can justify it? And so some of the passages that your uh, guest from last week in their book talked about, you know, I've heard come up a lot. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, this is a really good, it's a, a short documentary called Armor of Light, um, came out several years ago. It's The subject of it is Rob Schenk. He's the current president and founder of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. He was really involved for, I want to say, 25 years or so with the pro-life movement in D.C. I mean, like, and then he kind of started to see the inconsistency with that view and then the view that he and a lot of his fellow evangelicals had about guns and, and those sorts of things. So there's this really telling scene. He's in Ohio with a group of pastors, and one of them talks about, well, I, you know, kind of defensively, I carry a gun, um, as Shink is being a bit critical and trying to challenge him on the view. Because the Bible says, if, if you don't provide for your family, then you're worse than an unbeliever or an infidel, right? The passage in one of the Timothys. Now, of course, that passage has nothing to do with killing anyone, even in self-defense, right? It's actually about finances and taking care of people with, you know, that you work and, and the community, actually, right? It's setting a larger thing where the community looks out for one another's needs. So that's the kind of thing that happens. Um, and I just... There are times where there are some Bible verses that are a little bit challenging, especially some self-defense stuff in the Old Testament. But all I can say is reading through these, the different passages people use, it just, it's not even that difficult. Um, they're just, they're misused. Um, and, you know, I think I came to see as somebody who maybe 25 years ago would have, you know, thought pacifism was silly, both in the interpersonal and international level. But then you start going back and reading the passages that you kind of glanced over. You have these automatic justifications that I'm going to read it this way, and you don't even realize it, right? Um, then you go back and try to look at them on their own terms a little, yeah, more, not critically, uh, more fairly, more honestly, more openly. And all of a sudden, your beliefs are really challenged, whether it's about money or gun, guns and violence or, you know, fill in the list. So, yeah, so I think that's a long way to get to the point that I think it starts with this I'm an American. I'm a Christian. Those are core parts of who I am. And so I'm going to draw from the Bill of Rights and the Bible and my family tradition. And I've even seen people recently, you know, somebody asked the question, which is more important, the Bill of Rights or the Sermon on the Mount? And somebody basically said, well, you wouldn't be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount without the Bill of Rights. So it's really like, well, that's too bad for, you know, Christians in every other country and every other time period. Oof, sorry, we just got to oof that. Yeah, that was a rough one. Um, but yeah, and then there, there's the classic, somebody quotes a Bible passage and I'll kind of talk about the context and well, but that's what it says. I'm like, yeah, I know that's what it says. I'm trying to explain what it says. <laughs> if we could just get rid of all the verse and chapter numbers, we'd be a lot better off. But yeah, that ship sailed, I know. But okay, so you know, I think that's what happens. It's these core parts of the of the identity that people that are doing all these sorts of psychological things and moral things. And we just, we don't step out of them and, you know, we all do it, but this, this happens in that way with uh, the gun debate and where if I give up my beliefs about guns, that also 
threatens my beliefs about God, about freedom, about America, about who I am. Um, and a, a colleague before the, my book came out, she said someone had told her about it. I heard your book's God and Guns in America. Well, that's what we believe in, God and Guns. So I hear that kind of thing all the time. I said, well, you should read it. Let me know what you think. I <laughs> don't think it's what she thought it would be. But uh, yeah, I've noticed that more being in the Southeast the past 15 years than anywhere else. Although I think it's present in the Midwest and parts of the West also. Yeah, I think so much of it is just culturally ingrained and kind of unexamined. It's just part of who you are. It's just part of your life. It's part of the fabric of your part of your social fabric for many people um, to have guns be a part of that. Um, reminds me a lot of Bacon's uh, Idols of the Tribe. I think it would be Idols of the Tribe of just uh, the, these these cultural forces and ideas that are just so embedded that we don't critically look at them. We just kind of adopt them and accept them and uh, they frame our world in certain ways. And so to, to question them, to draw attention to them is to, to potentially cause a crisis in the overall frame of someone's world. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, yeah, when you become woke, those, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, there, that is the analogy, right? I think, um, uh, yeah, I don't even want to get into all the silliness around that word in America. But yeah, it, there is just like, a, it's like that light switch, you know, the light bulb goes on, like, you've never seen something that way before, you've never even thought to question this. And then you're kind of forced to. And yeah, and it's sometimes like, I enjoy that sometimes as a philosopher, and just my personality. Other times, it's like, I don't like it. Right? I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, well, and that kind of leads when you're when you force someone to look at it, at the issue. Uh, a lot of times that leads to certain knee-jerk reactions in the form of arguments that maybe are not all that strong. So I'm wondering, you list a lot of them in your book, and I, I'm going to call them firearm fallacies. Um, can you explain just what a couple of them are and maybe how you reason through them? Yeah, you bet. So there's that. I think that's the other thing that happens, whether it's engaging any, anyone in America who's more pro-gun gun rights kind of view and christians as well you get that you hear the same thing you know the same sort of slogans and as i had heard some of them and to be honest out of the 12 or so i look at only two or three are on the the other side of the debate right that are more skeptical about gun rights most of them are on the gun rights side because that side's been more active in the past 50 years the nra and others so anyway one of them is oh let's see let's pick some good ones <clears throat> oh yeah it's not a gun problem it's a heart problem Right. So um, you take people's guns away, the heart, they'll find a way to kill themselves or somebody else. Right. So they'll use a knife. You take the knives away, you take rot, they'll use a rock. So you're going to get rid of all knives and rocks. Right. So, well, I mean, one thing to say is using, I hope, some kind of informed common sense. If I'm walking down the street and the guy comes up to me with a knife or a rock, I feel a lot safer and better able to, you know, run away than if he has a gun. Um, right. So it's more lethal, kill more people more efficiently, more quickly. That matters. That's part of it. And the other thing to do with that is, look, that's what always surprises me. People that have sort of Christians that have, I guess, Augustinian um, sort of leanings about original sin and those sorts of things. Use that as a defense for people having guns. Right. But it seems to me if we're, we should be really skeptical at giving deeply fallen creatures this ability uh, without vetting them much, if at all, to own something that can kill large numbers of people, right? So actually, I, part of what I want to say is 
it is a heart problem. And because of the fallen nature of the human heart, we shouldn't be so quick to give people access to firearms that can do the damage that it can do. Second, the fact that we have a heart problem actually, which is about as fun as it gets in philosophy, can be a good argument for, you know, putting some more restrictions on who can own and, and use firearms. So that's one. So, so that's similar to the argument that we had here in Australia uh, in terms of uh, we had a mass shooting uh, at Tasmania at, at a, a tourist destination. And so the argument went, well, because we as people, we as humans are capable of these sorts of uh, atrocities and, and significant events, uh, we should limit the amount of force projection, um, the, the amount that people can do these things in a, in a large, large scale in a short period of time. And so we had a large scale gun buyback, uh, et cetera. It's interesting because I see when, when this debate comes up on Twitter though, um, and, and on social media, I see that actually being thrown back against uh, gun control by people saying, well, yes, but you have acid attacks. In Australia or in the EU, acid attacks are just the same as our gun violence in America. So why should we give up our guns? And the the one that I, that came up uh, just earlier today was someone saying that to a person in Switzerland, uh, where they have had a sum total of one acid attack, um, and it was being compared to you have acid attacks and we have um, school shootings and um, policemen sh- shooting unarmed black people, uh, which, so far as I can tell. Uh, just watching the news media seems to be an almost weekly occurrence in the US. How, what sort of, that, that seems to be, to be a, a significant cognitive dissonance uh, that is going on there. Uh, is that a, um, a cognitive fallacy or a theological fallacy, or is it just a, a, a struggle with the moral underpinnings of, of the, the framework that we have? Yeah, I think it's probably, I mean, case by case basis kind of thing, but I think all those things are bound up in that, but it's, it's especially a, well, it's an, I mean, it's just empirically not the same. That's like, so yeah, I, I write about this on the day that the Sandy Hook shooting happened um, that same day in, in China, uh, a man snuck into a, like a boarding school with a knife. Uh, and I think he, he's injured, I wanna say around 20 people, including some children. But there, you know, one big difference is none of them died. Um, so now the knives can be lethal, but it's on that same, you know. So yeah, weapons, um, things happen in other places. I've had people talk to me about rampant knife crime in London and the UK and how there's all these home invasions and all this stuff. And then you go and look and it it just seems to be overblown. So I I think it's it's another example of I've got a view and I'm gonna like figure out a way to protect it. And I've heard this somewhere, and so I'm going to use that, you know, as a way, you know, yeah, there's one acid attack. Well, over 100 people are going to, if I have my math right, die today um, due to gun, gun violence in the U.S. By, and that includes the suicide numbers as well. So, it, and it, it keeps growing. It used to be, I mean, it's, I think the most recent number, it's going to be up to 43,000 um, for 2019 or 2020. When I started writing the book, maybe... In 2018, it was low to mid 30s. So that's a serious increase over just a few years. I don't think people. I just. I, I think when you are in these worlds, you know, you 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 want to just like what you say. You you want to justify certain actions. Like, what what's it going to take for people to wake up? You know, um, 
I know, John, you've talked about how, you know, was it after Sandy Hook? You're like, if this didn't fix it, if this didn't stop the problem, like, then what will? So here in Australia, we essentially remove guns from the populace. Culture, socioculturally, that, you know, pretty much is, is going to be a, a, a non-option for America. And so you talk at the end of your book about the Brady Act, mm-hmm. uh, which I find quite amusing given that in 2001, I decided to go to Walmart, see if I could buy a handgun. I was successful in buying a handgun and walked out of the store uh, without even showing a license. When I, I was As an Australian citizen, I wasn't an American. There was no background check done. If that's the degree to which we have or which, if that's the degree to which the governmental controls, and I'm using controls in inverted quotes, is actually working, what are some tangible ways that gun violence can be mitigated? I mean, people are advocating for greater personal responsibility. Uh, you mentioned earlier that your um, your family had a gun gun cabinet with a chintzy lock. What what are, what are some actual tangible ways of reducing gun violence? Yeah, I'll, I'd like to give a couple, maybe just big picture, and then go into more depth on one. One of them is just, and this is more the, the moral or spiritual aspect, is just the, the church to be the church. And what, do I, what I mean by that is so much of what drives crime, including gun violence, it's those, it's it's economics, it's psychology, it's it's spiritual need, it's um, other, other sorts of violence, family violence, right, other kinds of things. And so, yeah, I mean, if we just work together, even interfaith alliances, you know, with places that are especially plagued by gun violence and do those sorts of things. That's, that's important. No law is going to solve it all, obviously, or even a set of laws. They can reduce gun violence. And they're not going to do away with it. That's another fallacy. People often talk about no law will get rid of all gun violence. I'm like, well, no law gets rid of all drunk driving either, but we still have them um, as a deterrent and reduction. So that's one thing. Another thing I think um, what's commonly called red flag laws, but extreme risk protection orders, maybe a, a federal one of those, because they've they've shown to be successful in different states where basically if someone I know, a family member, so a family member of somebody, a minister, a police officer can is aware of somebody who's a danger to themselves or others and they have firearms, they can start a process through a, a filing paperwork to get a legal hearing before a judge, whether they should keep their guns or not. Um, and you can do that with due, protecting due process and rights and those kind of things. But I think something that that's really been on my heart and mind more recently, um, because I've seen stories again coming up in my Twitter feed on gun violence. I have a list of, with that, and where people are, it's just basically trying to mandate safe storage of guns. Um, and again, you're not going to make it that happen everywhere. But if you make it a law, more people will do it. Um, they'll do the cost benefit analysis and they'll put their gun in a safe or something, uh, a lockbox or whatever. Because when, when I wrote the book, I started doing research of examples where, well, a couple of different kinds, one kind where parent, I mean, there are examples of parents shooting their own children, um, because they mistook them for an intruder. Um, and I won't go into the stories, but they're just, they're heartbreaking, the things that happened, but what happens with safe storage can can make a difference in a teen getting access to a gun to do a school shooting or you know use it somewhere else. Suicide, I think, especially by teens and, and younger people, is where safe storage can make a huge difference. Because I've had this conversation with people where they'll I, I talk they'll say, well, most you know two thirds of those forty three thousand are by suicide. If people want to kill themselves, they'll find a way. And it sounds right intuitively. 
except it's just in fact not true. Um, most suicide attempts are impulsive, especially by teens. And the vast majority of suicide attempts that are done by some other means than a firearm, they, they, they don't succeed, right? It's somewhere under 10%. Whereas maybe in the upper 80s to 90% of suicide attempts with a gun succeed. So, and the problem is a team makes that impulsive decision. They know where the gun is, they get it, and that's it. Whereas if it was locked away, the impulse goes away, maybe they get help. Um, so I think that's really important. The evidence just is that it's just false that people who uh, want to commit suicide will find a way. It just it's not the way human psychology works, right? There's that strong impulse, then it can go away, can come and go. But it, so many people who survive suicide attempts talk about right before they thought they had ended their lives, they had this sense of regret. Um, so we've got to make it harder. Um, we've got to value life, value young life um, more than we do. And uh, yeah, that's something the church can make a big difference. Not you know the safe storage thing because a lot of people are in favor of that. Um, even gun owners, it, it's it makes sense. Responsible gun owners already do it, and so I'm I'm happy to make that legally binding. Um, and so, kind of the big picture claim of the book is that we can reduce gun violence while protecting the rights of responsible gun owners. And that word "responsible" is doing a lot of work, and and I think rightly so. Yeah, it makes me think, especially now in this kind of pandemic, post-pandemic question mark world, um, with the rise of mental health crises that's going on. I mean, we're talking about it in our university. They're talking about it on the news. It's, it's a significant thing that's happening in our world. And so you would think that with that being on the rise, that taking these extra measures should be something that is even more warranted or that we should be even more interested in taking concrete steps toward. Yeah. And I've, I think I share that frustration that I think Brandon mentioned, like, what's it going to take? You know, people, when Sandy Hook happened, okay, now we'll do something or Columbine. I actually did some work with Every Town for Gun Safety with um, a Columbine survivor. And so talking with her about that. Uh, and then someone from Lexington near where I am, whose son was shot. He was just home from college in a park and, and he had nothing to do with him, hit by a stray bullet and killed. So seeing the destruction in people's lives, I think we just, we don't think about that the trauma, not just the death and the injury, but all the trauma that echoes out from that. Uh, and it's, it's 43,000. Yeah, that's a lot of people. But then when you think of all the people that are impacted by injuries from gunfire or people, yeah, it's just, sometimes I, you know, people say, well, look, you should, why do you care about gun rights? You should, you know, there are 1.1 million abortions in America every year. You should be worried about this or that, but we should, I mean, we're, if we're followers of, in, of Christ, we should care about all, all life, right? And uh, each, each human being has an, so much value as an inherent image bearer of God. And this is something that's getting worse and worse uh, in our country. And it's going to keep doing that unless something changes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why we're picking and choosing. If we're pro-life, we should be pro all of life. And so I definitely... Um, definitely agree with that posture. I, I'm curious too, in light of a lot of 
the serious shootings that we've had in the States, um, one of the most common reactions to these uh, events is that, oh, they're actually false flags and they've been uh, designed by the opposing side, those who are in favor of gun control to kind of, you know, stage this sort of, you know, fake event so that we can then all fall in line and give our guns away and the government takeover can begin. There's this kind of um, conspiracy theory logic behind some kind of pro-gun circles. And I'm kind of curious because, you know, you're, you're putting together an edited volume uh, with Erdman's on Christians and conspiracy theories, and you've got a number of great contributors to that. Kind of curious if if we can turn the conversation more in terms of this kind of overlap between kind of gun, pro-gun argumentation and kind of conspiracy theory reasoning. Yeah, there is the, some things that they share in common. I think one, you know, one argument uh, the strong pro-gun rights people often give is about we need guns as a defense against tyranny, right? Tyranny of our own government. And so this deep distrust that the government uh, wants to take our freedom, take our rights, um, distrust of the institutions and society, right? And we're, you know, we've seen that even more blatantly in the past few years, obviously, um, and in the pandemic, all those things. So the, all the conspiracies that have come up about in and around the pandemic and in and around the government. And so the that kind of thinking, yeah, they're, they're, that's the commonality. And that the the style of argument is often similar and that there's this there's a strong sort of emotional aspect. And there might be some data points, right? Um, because you know the government does overstep its bounds, obviously, right? So there's there are checks. That's why we have a system of checks and balances to try to work that out in our country. But yeah, I think that that concern like Look, as Christians and just as citizens of the United States, the best response to the concerns about tyranny would really strengthen the rule of law. But in many ways, that's the opposite of what's happening, right? But as Christians, that's for sure what we should want, because that's the nonviolent way to secure everybody's rights. Um, Switching over to other kind of conspiracy theories, right? I, You know, the false flag kind of operation, it's, yeah, I mean, I've read you know, about the Sandy Hook, I've read the pastor whose daughter was killed in Texas, you know, somebody showed up and was, you know, accusing him of lying about it. I mean, can you imagine losing your daughter in church to a shooting and then people coming and saying you're lying? I mean, I just, yeah, that would, I try to have good character and work at it, but I don't, that would push my limits, I'm sure. Um, so those kind of things, there's now conspiracy theories, right? In the book, we don't settle on one definition. One reason it'd be hard to get 21 academics from different disciplines, writing from people, though, really trying to make it accessible, but to agree on one definition. But also, I think it's hard to do that. So sometimes when we say conspiracy theory, we just mean, you know, false conspiracy theory, sometimes blatantly false, sometimes, you know, obscenely, clearly false. Um, but, but some conspiracy theories are true, right? So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. That actually was true. Um, so that's one difference we try to make. But yeah, this conspiracy, yeah, what is it? It's this growing distrust of expertise that we've had and of experts. That's part of it. It's the individualistic democratic impulses of Americans that, you know, anti-elitism, all that kind of stuff that feeds into it. And so that's something that I prefer just to write about like character and try to cultivate Christian virtue and sort of spiritual formation stuff. But, I, but then I see these, whether it's guns or conspiracy theories, these issues that we 
I mean, they undermine those things, I believe. Um, I have no like strong desire to wade into controversial issues, although I do it. So maybe I, maybe I do have one. <laughs> but anyway, I, I guess I'm just concerned about this kind of thing. And so that the reason I wanted to, I, I couldn't write the book myself. I just don't know enough about all of it to, to write a book. So the, the next best thing was get a, people from different fields and disciplines to do it. We've got pastors who've written, theologians, psychologists, communication specialists, information scientists. A historian. So at any rate, biblical studies, so a lot of different disciplines trying to help the church. A few of the chapters are pretty tough for, you know, they're a little more, would take a little more work, but really we're trying to make it something that was a useful resource, um, not just for, not really aimed at academics, but uh, uh, Christians who are interested in reading about this stuff and leaders who are dealing with it in their congregations or ministries. So yeah, there's this, all those things come in. And then there's just something we kind of just feel there's something about human beings. Maybe it's pride. Like I'm kind of in the, it's that CS Lewis thing when he talks about being part of the inner ring, right. In one of those, I think it's in one of the space trilogies, right. I'm in the inner circle, the inner ring. So I'm special. So that happens in all kinds of ways in, in our culture and in human organizations. But I think that's part of it too. It's like, we know what's really going on and here's what it is that can, for the, for some people that can be the motivation. Some people can give arguments and evidence. I've had discussions with another philosopher about some of this stuff, and he's, but there's this pattern of they'll make that I've, and just as my experience and what I've seen, someone will make an argument and I'll say, okay, I'm going to engage this person about this conspiracy theory, whether it's the 2020 election or uh, COVID or the vaccines. They'll give some evidence, I'll give a reply, and then they, the conversation shifts to something else. They don't really reply. So that's a feature of sort of conspiracy theory reasoning is that it, instead of engaging, instead of like, here's my argument for my conspiracy theory, and then, then I say, well, here's my objection. They kind of allude to it, but then talk about something else. So it's sort of this, if you, you start playing a game of whack-a-mole, then it's just time to maybe move on. It's whataboutism. Yeah, that, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned being interested in um, Christian formation and cultivating intellectual Christian virtue. And what I'm wondering is, have you been able to identify or do you have any thoughts about why conspiracy theories appeal to Christians? Like, what is it about Christians that potentially draws us to them in maybe a unique way? Um, And maybe another way, more philosophical way to frame that question would be, uh, what are some of the epistemic deficiencies or uh, malformation on this broader cultural level um, internal to Christianity, particularly, I think, evangelical Christianity in the U.S. um, that are at play that are just making us susceptible to the seeing false patterns that conspiracy theories are. Yeah, I think one one flaw, I guess, I would just say an intellectual and moral. Sometimes it's hard for me to, I think they in the actual world, they go together. So intellectual pride and a sense of a certain kind of moral or spiritual pride is at work. So think about somebody who said, I mean, I can think of individual people who have convictions, it appears, about U.S. election law, about how the legislative process works in Minnesota or Ohio or Michigan, about the efficacy of masks, about um, vaccines about, I mean, you know, on and on and on all the, you know, you, there's no way you, that you, that you know enough about all that stuff. Um, especially when you're going against consensus of experts. And of course, experts aren't always right, but, but honestly, there's a, 
and I've, I've seen this in myself sometimes as I get in these debates about when they become more heated, right? You, you, your pride gets up or anger comes up and, and you kind of get defensive. But to me, it's just in some ways as an intellectual hubris that you can know that much about anything. It's just, that's not possible <laughs> and be justified. I think part of why Christians, especially evangelical Christians in America, maybe are more susceptible to that kind of thing, apart from the American culture stuff, this sort of anti-elitism, that's part of our traditions as well, right? Um, or you know, part of white evangelical and evangelical tradition. And, and we don't have a pope or a hierarchy usually, um, although we have de facto ones over the years. But, you know, there's that evangelical persecution complex that comes into play. So there's a suspicion of culture in generally, kind of an us against them that the culture wars brought out. And so when you see the same institutions that you either have moral and spiritual disagreements with about abortion or other sort of cultural um, issues, and then you want to argue, then, then you just don't trust them at all, or you don't trust experts at all, or you think, you think everybody who, you know, all the experts at the CDC or wherever are, you know, they're, they're part of this conspiracy to take our freedoms away. Um, they, and ultimately they want to shut down the churches, right? All those kind of things. So I think it feeds into that persecution complex that a lot of American Christians have. Uh, and I don't want to step on toes of any listeners, but I think this is probably right. Uh, I've read a bit about this, you know, over there's, there's a skepticism about science that you can trace back, you know, so there's a lot, well, just to, you know, young earth creationist kind of stuff, right? The scientists are all, it's like, a, it, sometimes it's a conspiracy or they ignore the data or the fossil record or all that kind of thing. And so if you're discipled by your church, which I don't know how much it happens today because I'm old, um, but it was definitely around in, this, in the 80s and 90s, that kind of thing when I was in high school and college to be skeptical of the sci you know, scientific consensus about that. It's kind of easy to make the jump to skepticism about scientific consensus about anything, especially when it means I can't do stuff I want to do um, or have to do things I don't want to do. Um, so I think there's all those sorts of things. And then I think we just, as, especially as American Christians, this is where the cultural American stuff comes back into our faith. You know, we're just, I'm free. I, I should be able to do what I want. It's my, you know, the, my body, my choice stuff I've seen in terms of um, not getting vaccinated. You could, you know, write a good op-ed about that. Um, same slogan as the pro-choice crowd, right? right that that same person's again so i think a lot of those things come into play and we're just yeah those are some of my thoughts initially i guess on that question so i'm sure there's much more a sociologist psychologist could say but those are some of my thoughts of what plays into that and we're just look the, the, <clears throat> the anti-intellectualism the reason I, I was in campus ministry for about five years and then decided to go back to grad school become a philosopher um mark knoll's scandal of the evangelical mind and Dallas Willard's spirit of the disciplines in different ways are what led me to that decision. But, but we see that that book's as timely now as it was in 1991 when the first one came out. And I think we still see that. Yeah, we, we haven't cultivated. We've got more um, people like me who are professing Christians in you know academia, especially philosophy. But I don't know how much of that stuff has filtered down to where there's a, a value of loving the idea that we need to love God with our mind to the person in the pew, so to speak. And I think we really need to work at that. I think pastors are afraid to, not because the majority of their the people that, that they're leading necessarily buy into all this stuff, but some do. 
and some of the ones that do are the loudest and some of those also are the biggest donors. And so that there's a lot at, at risk there. So I'm, I'm fortunate. Not only am I free of that stuff, but I'm at a, the school. I mean, no one cares what I say as long as I'm, you know, a, a decent human being at Eastern Kentucky university. I don't have a doctrinal statement. I have to, to stay within. Right. So, so I think all that stuff comes into play. So one of the things that you cover in the book is a positive vision of what uh, gun culture could look like in the US. To my eyes, uh, it seems to address some of these aspects of, a, of the conspiracy theory um, and, and the conspiracy theories that go on uh, within Christian circles without directly needing to confront the psychological challenge of these as identity markers for uh, people. You, so you talk about peace building rather than uh, pacifism uh, and and also rather than just war. I was thinking it might be a, a good place for us to wrap up is thinking about um, what what is the place that then we as Christians uh, can hold in this, dis, in this debate? Um, is it just an either or, uh, or is there a, a via media or a third way uh, that we can address? Yeah, I think the, the peace building thing in terms of guns, the idea is, you know, we, I think often the way it, that it actually works, whether it's the international scale politically in between nations or interpersonally on our streets and in our homes, violence becomes kind of the de facto option, right? There's this trust in violence that we have for to get us what we want. A peace builder wants to say, look, it's, the burden of proof should be on using violence, right? It shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be, okay, I want to use violence. How can I justify it? And then you do it. But I think this, this actually is important in conspiracy theories too. And, and some of the contributors talk about this there's, in my chapters on humility, which, which comes to play, I think that virtue undergirds the approach to others where it's just easy to think conspiracy theory. You think the earth is flat, um, you know, that, that you've been magnetized by the COVID vaccines and just dismiss the other person. But a peace builder is going to say, okay, as much as it's hard to do, what it means to love that person is to take, not just take them seriously, but in a certain way, take their view seriously. So you, you, they say something to you. Let's say it's about COVID vaccines. And so then you paraphrase what they say to kind of make sure that you're understanding it. Then you praise them. And you got to do this honestly, right? It's not like a, you know, I coach high school soccer and the girls know about the compliment sandwich, right? Say a nice thing, tell them what you really want to tell them negative and say the nice thing. But you have to do this from the heart, right? So there's, it's got to be done out of genuine love for people. But, but people they do care in a certain sense about what's true. They, they, so if you really believed, you know, the conspiracy theorists I'm talking to, let's say they really believe that if I get the vaccine, that that's going to be really damaging to me. It's going to poison my body. Well, they care about me. I think they're, they're wrong empirically, but, but recognizing that, right. And so saying something about that, but then just asking probing questions. So what about this? Or why do you think that? And instead of, I've talked about this with my students. I think this is important for Christian apologetics and just sharing Christ to people more generally is especially contemporary apologetics and just these kind of discussions about guns or conspiracies. We're like, we have this paradigm of we're face-to-face -face debate going at each other and then the truth will fall out, right? But I think the better way to look at it, and this is something from Dallas Willard, 
the way he taught philosophy and dealt with people, and I think it's right, is we should see ourselves as shoulder to shoulder, looking out together, trying to figure out what's true, right? And so whether I'm in the classroom or talking to a neighbor about our church or about a conspiracy theory or COVID, I'm supposed to be trying to help people come to know things. I'm not supposed to be winning. I can win an argument and burn somebody over, right? Especially with philosophy, right? And and it can even use sophistry or sophistry. I always forget how to say that word, but you know, I can can do it in the wrong way. But if we're trying to help people come to know things, that just changes the whole dynamic, right? And so instead of just dismissing people as idiots or misinformed or as back, you know, I've been called both a backwards thinking fundamentalist and somebody who's just trying to sound progressive. So my uh, university friends will think I'm cool. So um, I guess that's good, right? If I appear to be both of those things, but that third way, whether it's guns or conspiracy theories is let's just, let's do it together. Uh, Let's talk about it together. Let's look at these things together. And I don't know, you know, success who knows what that would look like what it would happen but i think all of a sudden instead of an enemy you're working together side by side with somebody uh, and they can tell you care about them so i think that's what we should do well dr austin thanks so much for all that you shared all of your insights and especially the spirit in which you have uh, presented a lot of these uh, difficult issues related to guns and conspiracies but uh, just really appreciate your time and joining us today thank you very much that was good Yeah, we think you're cool. That's good. I'm going to tell my daughters.